Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I am delighted to talk again to Arya Nakisa. You're most welcome, sir. Uh, it's an honor to be here, Paul. Thank you so much uh, for having me uh, again uh, to speak to you. Uh, and I've been looking forward towards this session because uh, we're going to be discussing what I think is a pretty important topic. Usually it's difficult for people today to understand the modern history of Muslim societies, by which I yeah. mean the post-1800 history of these societies. Generally speaking, we can say that since 1800, Muslim societies across the world have been fundamentally reshaped by the most influential political ideology of the modern era, which is liberalism. Yes. Now, proponents of liberalism or liberals are found in different societies. In 1800, most liberals were white Westerners, but liberalism subsequently spread throughout the globe, such that there are now many liberals outside the West in all different places, India, China, mm -hmm. Latin America, and Muslim societies as well. We can say that liberals have embraced a particular approach to governing Muslim societies, and that approach has actu actually had a name that people used during the colonial period, and that was called Muslim polity, Muslim policy, or politik musulman, or Islam politik. And I am going to talk about this and argue that this set, that this type of policy that was created in the colonial period actually has been continued until the present day in many important ways. And this Muslim policy centers on three overlapping projects, which are very important for understanding modern Muslim societies. So there's a human rights project, there's a religious reform project, and there's a security project akin to what is now known as counterterrorism or counter-extremism. And did you, you, you've written, as I was going to say, you've written an article, you're an author of uh, a fascinating article, uh, which I've read, um, which is entitled um, Liberalism's Distinctive Policy for Governing Muslim Populations, Human Rights, Religious Reform and Counterterrorism from the Colonial Era until the Present. And I've read, I read this article and it's not is not yet published, although inshallah it will be uh, soon. Uh, and and just for uh, just for those few people who who don't know who Arya is, he's professor of Islamic studies and anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis in the USA, and he obtained his PhD from Harvard University. So uh, he has very kindly agreed today to talk about his fascinating article, as you've just uh, begun begun to do. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so it's as I as soon as it is uh, published, I uh, plan on uh, making it you know as publicly available as I can. But uh, this will give you kind of give the audience a taste for the topics that I cover in this article, and that I also cover in some of my other articles. So if you just go to Google Scholar and you put in Ari and Nikisa, so yeah, this article this article also overlaps with some other work uh, that I've done. Right. Um, Okay, so just to make everything clear to the viewers, I want to go ahead and be careful about defining terms. So when I say that Muslim policy has a history which extends back to the colonial period into the present, uh, 
when I talk about the colonial period, what I mean is basically 1800 to 1950. So this is a period where liberal Western European empires like the British Empire, the French Empire, the Dutch Empire uh, ruled, ruled over almost all of the Muslim world. And then you can compare the colonial period to the post-colonial period. So the post-colonial period basically dates from the end of World War II. So roughly 1950 until today. In the post-colonial period, liberal Western states no longer formally rule over Muslim lands. Mm -hmm. However, uh, liberal Western states and societies continue to exert informal economic and political dominance over Muslim societies and many other, many non-Muslim societies uh, mm -hmm. in the global South. And uh, in this post-colonial period, this post-1950 period, uh, when we talk about liberals, not all of these liberals are in Western societies. There are many liberals who exist in Muslim societies and liberals in Western societies and liberals in Muslim societies cooperate to implement certain policies for governing Muslim populations in their countries. Uh, so to recapitulate, what I'm going to do today uh, is to provide viewers with a conceptual framework for understanding Muslim history in the modern era, from the colonial period to the post-colonial period. And the guiding idea in this framework is that over the modern era, liberals have used a specific policy to govern Muslims across the world. It's traditionally known as Muslim policy, and that this Muslim policy involves three overlapping projects, a human rights project, a religious reform project, and a counter-terrorism project. And by the way, Paul, I just you're, the, you're extremely polite as a host. Whenever you want to jump in and interject or ask a question, please feel free. You're, you're, you're very generous. I'm, I'm quite anxious at some point to hear your, your definition of what, it, what a liberal is or, or what liberalism is. I'm aware that it comes in different shades, different flavors. It's not just a single uh, uh, homogenous ideology. So in what sense... Um, do you mean liberal and liberalism when it comes to West? Because it, it might strike some people as odds to use that term when describing the British Empire, for example. It doesn't strike one obviously as being liberal, although I understand having read your article what you mean. But um, could you just of uh, a few words on that in, in due course, please? Yeah, yeah, that's actually a great place to start. So let me try and give a little bit of a more precise definition of liberalism. Although I can start by saying, uh, when I talk about liberalism, what I mean uh, is people who are self-defined liberals, who said, we are liberals and these are our policies. We are liberal states. So for instance, they might say we're British and or we're Dutch and we're French and we support liberal principles and this is how we govern. Uh, I usually what I'm trying to do is take the policies that are generated by self-identified liberals uh, and kind of look at the underlying uh, political ideology. But I can be a little bit more specific. So liberalism is a political ideology, obviously, with some measure of complexity, uh, which began to crystallize uh, in the 18th century. One of the most important concepts in liberalism is that of human rights. According to this concept, all humans are entitled to certain basic rights, which are defined largely in relationship to fundamental liberal ideals. Among the most important of these liberal ideals are individual liberty, equality, and mildness or humaneness and legal punishment. So during the 19th century, for instance, liberals championed human rights, not only within Western countries, but also abroad. So their efforts contributed to legislation which abolished slavery across the globe. That's kind of like a early human rights uh, initiative. Uh, they also championed legislation with the aim of protecting women across the globe, including non-European women. So they go to the Indian subcontinent and said, for instance, we need to abolish uh, child marriage. We need to abolish widow burning or sati. 
they also were very concerned with securing religious freedoms uh, for minorities, although religious freedom was understand in a, understood in a particular way, and they prioritized uh, freedom for Christian religious minorities across the globe. So they would go ahead and go to the Ottoman Empire, to China and Japan, and say, you need to go ahead and uh, grant these Christian religious minorities a type of individual freedom. Since the 18th century, most liberals have treated uh, the relevant human rights standards as not as dynamic and constantly shifting. So they've believed that there are constant advances in human rights, uh, and they've referred to these oftentimes, especially in the 18th and the 19th century, as a type of moral progress. Mm. Uh, so uh, on this view, existing laws and norms should be constantly reformed such that they better embody. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Body liberal ideas. And through these, so through these reforms, individuals should be granted ever greater liberty and equality. It is also held that legal violence should be made ever more mild and humane. So let's see, end torture. Let's restrict corporal punishment. Laws and norms are seen as consistent with human rights insofar as they maximize liberal ideals in the present. However, it is understood that further reforms are inevitable and desirable. Laws and norms which fall short of these shifting liberal ideas are seen as violating human rights. So it's mm. not like in the 1800s or the 1900s, they said, okay, now we have all the human rights, it's over. Uh, the idea is that you're constantly going to be in the process of generating new rights to new types of freedom, whether it's for children or women or abolishing slavery or abolishing serfdom, constantly attacking new limitations on equality through uh, eliminating various forms of discrimination gender, race, uh, sexuality, uh, and so on. So this is so these is this gradual realization restructuring of society uh, such that it better accords with these liberal ideals. This right. is kind well, of moral well, progress. Yeah. Just to get the historical uh, events that uh, were seminal for, for this development, as you're describing it. So would the French Revolution in 1789, for example, be uh, a catalyst for this with the slogans of liberty, equality, uh, fraternity. And then we have in the 19th century, people like J.S. Mill in, in England, or the great theorist uh, of, uh, he wrote On Liberty, the famous uh, book. We have Jeremy Bentham, the, um, you know, the, the founder or the, the, the main name associated with utilitarianism uh, uh, and, and so on. Are, are these are some of the, uh, William, William Wilberforce, another Englishman, uh, of course, in Britain was um, for years in the wilderness trying to abolish slavery, but eventually Parliament at the end of his life decided to uh, embrace this cause. And indeed, during the empire, the British Empire, slavery was abolished everywhere and, and enforced by the Royal Navy, I think, at one point in, in places like India. 
Yeah, those are some good classical names. And one could also add, you know, so they're the British names, they're the French names, like, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville or Condorcet and, you know, uh, or um, Napoleon, who went around spreading liberal ideals across the European continent and actually invaded Egypt with the ideal of spreading liberal uh, liberal ideals uh, to Egypt as well. So yeah, you have these British, these French figures. You also have Dutch and German figures uh, as well. So, and of course, you have the American Revolution. Yeah, so those are some really great kind of paradigmatic examples uh, of mm. liberal discourse that you've mentioned. Okay, Th- thanks for that. Sorry to interrupt. No, no problem. Uh, it's good. Uh, sometimes I assume that people, so- sometimes it can be really helpful to jog the memories of the audience or just to give them some specific ex- examples so things yep. don't become abstract. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so uh, liberals uh, criticize human rights violations, whether or not they are justified with reference to religion. Nevertheless, liberals often attack pre-modern religious traditions with special force as they endorse numerous human rights violations. And this is true of all pre-modern religious traditions, including Islam. And by the way, when I use the term human rights violations, I know that though these sound, this sounds very scandalous from a liberal perspective. Uh, of course, um, there is a lot of debate over, you know, what, you know, to what extent are human rights standards justified, how, how they reflect one specific uh, political ideology as opposed to others. But right now we're just in the process of describing things from a liberal point of view. So I'll say human rights violations, but uh, of course they should be put in quotation marks uh, because obviously a lot of these pre-modern religious traditions would never describe their teachings in, in these terms. Right. Uh, so how can we understand why all of these pre-modern traditions, pre-modern religious traditions, whether we're talking about Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, uh, endorse quote-unquote human rights violations? Uh, so these tr- pre-modern traditions value social bonds that are related to marriage, family, religion, and community, and tendencies to value these bonds likely derive in part from humans' biologically rooted psychology. To strengthen and maintain marital and family relationships, pre-modern religious traditions prescribe duties for husbands and wives, duties for parents and children, and general duties towards kin. To strengthen and maintain relationships with deities like God, uh, 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 pre-modern religious traditions prescribe duties of worship and sacrifice. To strengthen and maintain a community, and uh, to strengthen and maintain a common identity in a form of community, like an ummah. Uh, Islam and other traditions prescribe dis- distinctive shared practices like rituals and forms of dress and dietary norms. Generally speaking, pre-modern religious traditions value individual freedom and equality to some extent, and and they avoid, they they don't prescribe, let's say, random violence. Nevertheless, such traditions are willing to endorse some significant limitations on freedom and equality and some significant forms of violence for the sake of strengthening and maintaining valued social bonds. Thus, all of the duties that I've mentioned above limit individual freedom, and many of them sanction different or unequal statuses, so husband versus wife, parents versus children members of the religious in-group versus members of the religious out-group. Moreover, these duties, like all duties, are uh, enforced uh, through legal and social violence. Now, from a liberal perspective, 
the pre-modern religious duties that we're talking about are seen as excessive and violating human rights. Uh, liberalism expresses individualism, liberalism stresses individualism and places uh, less value on social bonds and indeed is often hostile towards social bonds. Liberalism prioritizes constant increases in individual freedom and equality and constant decreases in legal and social violence even when it leads to the destruction of these social bonds. So whenever you have liberal governance, you start having these social bonds tied to marriage, tied to kinship, tied to cultural, a unifying cultural tradition, tied to humans or, or relationships between humans and, and their God as kind of weakening. Uh, but liberals promote this because this is seen as a price worth paying for greater liberty, for greater equality. Because it's interesting that you, you're saying that liberalism prizes or prioritizes individual liberty and equality at the expense of social cohesion. Uh, yes. It's been noted for a long time that a preeminent emphasis on individualism uh, leads to the breakdown of the family and the social order because for obvious reasons, people are motivated by their own individual agendas rather than concern for the collective, for the whole, for the whole of society. So it's interesting that um, they're willing to sacrifice the social order and the altar of individual freedom. It seems quite a, an unbalanced um, perspective. <sighs> Yeah, that's certainly the view of these pre-modern, that, that people who are proponents of these pre-modern religious traditions have held, uh, that they've traditionally held, and some of them still hold into the modern period. So none of these people and none of these traditions will say, oh, individual liberty has no value. Oh, um, uh, equality has no value. But sometimes they will, they will say uh, individual liberty and equality are great, but they're not the only great things. We shouldn't sure. maximize them. So for instance, maybe there should be limitations on blasphemy. Maybe there should be limitations on uh, sexual liberty, because if we don't have those things, uh, people are going to undermine uh, our relationship with uh, God uh, or the relationship between husband and wife. Or if we don't put duties on children and pa and parents, it's going to undermine parent-child relationships. Uh, so that's what you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So given that pre-modern religions uh, sanction what quote-unquote human rights violations, some liberals have advocated for repudiating religion altogether. So going back to the Enlightenment, you have some people who are you know hardline atheists. Uh, however. Most liberals have historically been religious in some mm. sense. And what they've at, so the notion that after the Enlightenment, everyone became a secular atheist is not really true. No, I, th I think, I think most, most of the Enlightenment thinkers, the philosophers, uh, uh, Diderot and so on, were actually deists and, and uh, um, uh, Voltaire. And uh, so they, they weren't hardcore atheists, they're a very small minority who were, absolutely. Yeah, that's the most. So, what you get with the Enlightenment, you have some kind of atheists, but then you have deists, and then you have people adopting kind of liberal versions of various uh, religions. Mm. Um, so, uh, so liberals have often advocated not for destroying religion or eliminating religion, but for reforming religion. Mm. And what reforming religion entails is to reinterpret scriptural texts and doctrines in a manner that legitimates shifting human rights standards. Yeah. So in 18th century Europe, liberals successfully advocated for reformed versions of Protestant Christianity, Catholic Christianity, and Judaism, in which scriptural texts were reinterpreted as affirming, as affirming a right to religious freedom and a prohibition on slavery, among other things. Uh, many of the liberals involved in this religious reform project were sincere religious believers. So an exa examples are uh, John Locke, 
Moses Mendelssohn, Joseph Eibel, kind of a Catholic thinker, yeah. William Wilberforce was mm. a Christian. Um, uh, by the 19th century, Reformed Christianity would, through further reinterpretations, also go ahead towards a prohibiting child marriage and uh, mandating women's education. Indeed, some liberals, like uh, Immanuel Kant is the most famous example, explicitly advocated for the continuous reform of all religions uh, in keeping with moral progress or shifting human rights standards. And Kant freely admitted that, yeah, in order to reform all religions, we are going to sometimes need to uh, engage in forced or unconvincing reinterpretations of scriptural texts mm. i think yeah i think actually wrote a text if i remember rightly manual can religion within the limits of reason alone uh it was it was you know an extra i mean he, he wasn't even coy about it he was very open about it uh so uh the enlightenment project is the the defining paradigm uh th through which religion can uh function so yeah yeah, and in fact, it's been a very successful uh, project. So today, if you were to talk to, uh, let's say, we were talking about some of these European traditions like Protestant Christianity, Catholic Christianity, Judaism, people will assume that uh, their religious texts were always understood as endorsing a uh, right to religious freedom or a prohibition on slavery or a ban on child marriage, whereas in reality, these are reinterpretations uh, that were generated in the 18th and 19th uh, centuries. Mm. Uh, and the people who are generating them often said, okay, well, we're generating them to legitimate Enlightenment norms, but now people have forgotten. Uh, yes. And they think that people have always yeah. interpreted uh, these religions in this way. I think it's a really important point you make there, that the, 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 there was an ideological attempt to reinterpret these in the light of enlightened principles. But now we've forgotten that and we just accept now this new paradigm as axiomatic. It's just a self-evident way of reading the text. We've lost the sense that our readings are relative, they're historical, they're culturally conditioned. And they now just become natural, and uh, but they're not. That they they are our reality is already pre-framed for us when we approach when we do our hermeneutics. We have our is is the structure in our minds already being given by our culture. So I just wanted to. It's a really good point you make there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is something that all people who are affiliated with any religious tradition have to grapple with is that in reality, all of the traditions that exist today have really been radically, including Islam, have been radically altered uh, by these modern uh, changes by these modern uh, reform uh, projects. Uh, now, of course, there there are traditionalist minorities or certain traditional or, or scholars and all of these traditions who are aware of some of these changes that have occurred. But if you're going to talk about the general populace, uh, the general populace often has difficulty distinguishing their pre-modern religious tradition from uh, interpretations that were were projected onto this uh, a tradition in order to legitimate kind of uh, the Enlightenment ideals of human rights. Absolutely. So to get into uh, another point that is uh, important for understanding liberalism uh, is that liberal views on human rights are intertwined with liberal views on civilizational progress and imperialism. And, and this point can be explained as follows. Since the 18th century, liberal ideology has been associated with a particular perspective on history. According to this perspective, human societies progress both materially and morally over time. Material progress is equated with continuous increases in scientific technology and science and technology and economic output. Meanwhile, as noted previously, you also have a concept of moral progress. So moral progress is 
equated with constant advances in human rights. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the term civilizational progress was used to denote this combination of material and moral progress. Today, when we talk about material and pro moral progress together, we talk about development, the term development, like UN development goals, mm. international development. Liberals hold that civilizational progress, or what we would today call development, is a good thing, and that Western societies have achieved the highest level of progress or development. Um, so we'd say, for instance, Western countries are developed countries. Other countries are underdeveloped. Countries outside of the West are underdeveloped, or they're lagging in development indicators. Uh, so this is a very kind of old uh, and, um, discourse. And just just bringing in a, you know, almost a contemporary example, the... Uh, uh, the, the the ongoing concerns in the Western media and Western government circles about what's happening in Afghanistan uh, and the withholding of vast amounts of money uh, uh, from that country. So uh, poverty and famine is a real uh, problem there because of the Western concern for women's rights and women's education, for example. So there's very much a bearing down on, on that side. And of course, the asymmetry of power that Afghanistan is a very poor country. It's been occupied for two decades. Um, uh, and the inequality of power economically and militarily is is very, very extreme, um, uh, uh, such that we can almost strangle that country economically so that they will adopt human rights, progress, Western values. Um, and that this is happening as we speak. This is not a historical example, of course. Yeah, that your point is a great one, and it underlies these continuities between the past and the present. So many things which mm -hmm. we assume have a very limited history, we assume that, you know, maybe something like a religious reform project or counterterrorism discourse is something that emerges maybe over the past 20 years. It's tied to the war on terror. It's tied to the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but in reality, these discourses, these projects have kind of much deeper roots and much longer histories. Yeah. So since the 18th century, many liberals have endorsed the view that Western societies have a moral obligation to spread civilizational progress or development, mm -hmm. including human rights uh, throughout the world. And the, this was has often been described or was described in the 19th century as the civilizing mission or the white man's burden. Uh, it is expected that many non-Westerners, of course, will resist progress. So not just Muslims, but basically everyone outside of the West, it was assumed yeah. in the 19th century, they're going to resist progress or development because out of fear that it will destroy their valued religious traditions and their valued social bonds. Given this situation, imperialism, so rule by an empire, uh, becomes a necessary tool for spreading progress. More specifically, the idea, the liberal idea, is that Westerners must establish authoritarian political control over non-Western lands, and they must use this control to efficiently transplant new technologies and economic institutions and to compel non-Westerners to embrace progress. So think about the project in Iraq or Afghanistan, although on a much broader scale, so continuing across uh, the entire globe in Hindu lands and Buddhist lands uh, over a very long period. This is uh, what we're talking about when we are talking about the role of imperialism or kind of liberal justification for imperialism as a necessary tool for spreading a development in human rights. Quite. Uh, between the late 18th and uh, between the late 18th and mid 20th centuries, liberal or liberally inclined Western states established vast empires, justifying their actions as a means of spreading progress. So, spreading civilizational progress, the civilizing mission. Mm 
Uh, these empires encompassed almost all regions with large Muslim populations. So mm -hmm. the British Empire encompassed the Indian subcontinent, along with many parts of the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. The French Empire encompassed North and West Africa. The Dutch Empire encompassed Indonesia. The quasi-Russian, the quasi-Western Russian Empire encompassed the Caucasus and Central Asia. And in the, in the process of invading and subjugating these lands, the empires, these liberal empires, uh, inflicted millions of deaths on Muslim populations. So sometimes when we think about liberalism, if someone says liberal authoritarian rule under an empire or liberal genocide, people will say, oh, no, you, there can't be authoritarian rule. It conflicts with liberalism. There can't be genocide. It conflicts with liberalism. But in fact, liberalism, as applied to majority, the majority of the globe, historically has involved authoritarianism or, or dictatorship. And it's also resulted in various genocides. So even put aside the Muslim populations, if we're talking about, for instance, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, or Amerindian populations, or Aboriginal populations, Maori in uh, New Zealand, uh, this it's important to, to recognize that liberalism has these other components. Now, ideological presentations of liberal, liberalism omit this. They omit the... But, 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 but it's not just a question of the presentations. It's not the case that liberalism at home, so to speak, so in England or the United States, is a different animal uh, from liberalism in 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 its uh, imperial outreach in those areas that you mentioned in the world, because our, our experience of liberalism in England, we think of J.S. Mill and so on. It's all very very civilized, you know, like it is in the states or maybe in France. But when we're talking about imperialism, we're talking about an ideology that's weaponized uh, and uh, in, in through colonialism, and then and then you get the, uh, the the after the effects, the consequences that you outline. But j just for the record, what, what genocides are are you referring to that are explicitly linked to liberal this liberal agenda? Do you think? Okay, so if we're talking about so uh, when we're talking about, so, I mean, one example would be Amerindian populations. Uh, one example would be Aborigines in Australia. Uh, one example would be kind of the over a million people who died in Algeria. But even when we're talking about the West, mm. the, the the idea with liberalism is you need a dictatorship to to uh, force the people to adopt progressive liberal values. Right. And once they've accepted these values, they no longer need the dictatorship, but they need a period of dictatorship first. Uh, so if you're talking about the French Revolution, there is a period where you have People in France saying no, you have significant portions of the population saying no, and they are killed off. Yeah. And one of the reasons why the Napoleonic Wars kill three to seven million people is it's to spread liberal ideals across the European continent, precisely because many Europeans are saying we're not on board with this. Right. Um, and even when we talk about liberal rule within Western countries, I, I mean, uh, there are certain, so for instance, in, in the United States, when we talk about, even when we talk about the land mass of the United States, so it's, yeah, it's liberal rules for white populations, which are seen as sufficiently advanced as kind of signing on to the liberal project. But if you're Amerindian, if you are African American, you're treated very differently. That's when kind of authoritarian rule becomes uh, necessary. Um, so liberalism always tailors governance to different populations. So for instance, if you are a segment of the population which has adopted liberalism voluntarily, okay, we don't need to use the stick to force you to get to force you to adopt liberal values. But if you say no, 
uh, whether you're a European population or a non-European population, then some type of uh, violence or authoritarian violence is necessary to get you on board. And, and we see this obviously, but don't, don't, I don't want to anticipate anything you might say. We see this in France, on, ongoing situation where liberal values coming from the French Revolution uh, in a in particular form of laicite, secularism, are very much forced on Muslims. And if they don't like it, then... Uh, there are serious consequences for them in terms of deportation, a loss of jobs, and even imprisonment. And this is an ongoing reality uh, as we speak in uh, in the French Republic. Yeah, so dur- uh, as we'll see, going back to the colonial period, there were in the early 19th century, there were kind of these minority Muslim populations, uh, communities in Europe. There weren't many of them, uh, but they were seen as... Uh, uh, minorities that should be treated in an authoritarian fashion. And a- across Europe, you see different rules for ruling different groups. So, for instance, uh, whites who have signed on to liberalism are treated in one way. Muslim populations are treated in a different way. Although I'll even say that with respect to whites, I mean, white Christians, if they uh if they resist the liberalizing project, they will also be refer that, that uh, similar, some similar uh, security measures can be used to target them. So they will be seen as they will be labeled as domestic terrorists or extremists. Now, I'm not saying I know some of this stuff is tied to you know Donald Trump or whatever. Uh, I'm not in any way supportive of this type of movement. However. Uh, it is a fact that liberal governments, where they see any kind of non-liberal movement, uh, will, especially inspired by a religion in any way, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, whatever, uh, will start targeting that group to make sure that it continues to adopt these shifting liberal norms. And uh, you, especially you, what you're saying here is true in America, it's true in Britain with the Prevent uh, program, uh, which uh, disproportionately affects uh, Muslims and where traditional orthodox muslim views are problematized that they're seen as issues for the state in france uh even even more extreme there and it, it's yeah it seems to be a common pattern in the in in the west that uh that the, these minorities are, are problematized unless they accept the the zeitgeist the liberal secular ideology yeah yes that's a great point so we will uh, and i'll continue to add in some more details uh, as we go along uh, because that's a point that needs to be developed. And later on, we'll talk more about the, the modern period, especially in Europe. Okay. One thing that I wanted to talk about, even uh, in the colonial period, though, is the important role that NGOs or non-government, non-governmental organizations have played historically played in liberal governance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so NGOs are private organizations concerned with the betterment of society. Uh, In the 19th century, NGOs run by Western Christian missionaries worked alongside the empires to bring progress or development to non-Western people. So they did things like build churches, schools, printing houses, hospitals, centers for vocational training. And through these NGOs, uh, uh, through these institutions, the NGOs propagated a liberal reformed Christianity, which was defined by its respect for human rights. They also waged continual campaigns against human rights violations, which they associated with non-Christian Christian groups. So they would say, okay, so in the 19th century, you have Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, and the way that they understand their traditions in the 19th century is as endorsing restrictions on religious freedom. 
endorsing mm. slavery or a caste system, endorsing polygamy or concubinage, uh, endorsing minor marriage. So right now, if you were to say something like, oh, well, you know, 19th century B Buddhists were on board with, you know, slavery and restrictions on religious freedom or polygamy, many people would be shocked because they're only familiar with the reformed Buddhism. But in the 19th century, uh, in reality, you have uh, these features are characteristic of uh, Islam, uh, Judea, Islam, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, just as they had, just as most of them had previously been characteristic of Judaism and Christianity in their pre-reformed form. Um, so you have these NGOs, these Christian missionary NGOs, and they say uh, Christianity is consistent with human rights teachings, and we're spreading the and spreading the Christian gospel, the reformed Christian gospel, and spreading human rights kind of merged together with these NGOs. Mm -hmm. And I mention this because it's important. Current secular NGOs actually descend uh, from these Christian missionary NGOs. In what, uh, so way, they, in what way do they descend? Obviously. You know, the, the Christian ones are Christian and the current ones are secular. So in what sense do they, is there a kind of uh, etiology or genealogy? Uh, so uh, aside from just organizational issues, uh, these Christ, the Christian missionaries that you get in the 19th century are deeply concerned with uh, development projects and human right. rights projects. Right. Now, someone might say, well, what does that have to do with Christianity? Well, in the 19th century, Christianity has been radically reformed such that it's basically a vector for human rights ideas. It's basically a Christian justification for human rights ideas. So people start believing that spreading religious freedom across the world, banning minor marriage across the world, uh, abolishing blasphemy laws across the world is the essence of Christianity. Pre-modern Christians didn't see their religion in those terms. This yeah. is basically Christianity has been turned into a mass, has been turned into kind of like an instrument to spread human rights norms. I, I think just to clarify that point, if one reads the New Testament, which is the, you know, the text, the scripture of Christianity, there are repeated injunctions in Paul's letters and in, in letters apparently by Peter and others that slaves should obey their masters. And there's, there's one, one passage in one of the letters to Peter where slaves are told to obey their masters even when they are cruel. So the idea is that a good Christian who is a slave will uh, will willingly obey their owners, their masters, even when they're brutal towards them. And this is seen as a divine command, if you accept that, of course, as scripture. So and patriarchy is there in the New Testament as well. And so on. and there's no talk about uh, blasphemy laws being abolished. Blasphemy is in the Bible as a whole is uh, condemned as a capital crime, actually, in many parts of the Bible. So all of these kind of. Um, teachings are overlooked uh, as they are now with teaching on sexual morality though it's very clear the bible condemns certain kinds of behavior that's now been ignored or reinterpreted or just shifted under the carpet uh, as the liberal uh project continues to progress that's the right yeah word. so so as we'll see one key aspect of the liberal project is basically to take over all religious traditions and turn them into tools for spreading liberal norms across the world Interesting. that's what religious reform is about right um okay um so you have these empires they're working with these ngos and one of the things that these empires do is they sponsor scholarly research on different the different non-western peoples that they're trying to govern with the aim of, of crafting effective policies for governing them 
and when we're talking about imperial scholarship, often referred to as Orientalism, Orientalist scholarship, yeah. on Muslims, they, they pay a lot of attention to the concepts of Orthodox Islam and Sharia and Jihad. Right. And for them, they will say that, you know, Orthodox Islam consists in the basic teachings of pre-modern Sunni Islam, that it places great emphasis on scriptural texts like the Quran and Hadith, that it interprets these texts in a relatively literalistic manner, that it prescribed that Orthodox Islam prescribes an expansive corpus of norms, which is known as the Sharia. And these norms regulate all these different aspects of human life, from worship to diet, to dress, to family life, to commercial transactions, criminal punishment, and more. Now, they recognize that the, that the imperial scholars, the imperial policymakers, those working for the European empires, they recognize that these Sharia norms endorse some significant limitations on freedom and equality and also some significant forms of violence for the sake of strengthening and maintaining valued social bonds. Uh, and what this means is that from a liberal imperial standpoint, the sh Sharia norms violate human rights. Uh, additionally, they recognize that Orthodox Islam prescribes a type of religious warfare known as jihad. One fundamental aim of jihad is to defend the Muslim community. Uh, so hence where they are able, a jihad doctrine encourages Muslims to fight to protect the lives and property of other Muslims, to repel non-Muslim invasions, and to expel non-Muslim empires from Muslim lands. Mm. Now, liberals and the liberal empire see this as very problematic. Because they say we're committed to some type of secularism. They, they would do. This is a direct revolt against the, the benign imperial rule of <laughs> these countries. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So they're very explicit of that. They say they will say things like there are other groups that are used to that are used to being ruled by foreigners, like let's say Hindus are used to being ruled by foreigners, but right. Muslims have this idea that they have the right just to throw off foreign rule. Yeah. And this is problematic. Um, so uh, based on this, based on their research, they say that uh, the imperial policymakers come to view Orthodox Islam, Sharia, and Jihad as deeply problematic, mm -hmm. uh, and they hold that Muslim attachment to the Sharia is going to prevent Muslims from adopting moral progress in the form of new human rights. And they also note that this uh, Jihad doctrine is going to encourage Muslims to revolt against Western rule. And during this period, imperial policymakers refer to Muslim strong attachment to orthodox religious teachings as fanaticism. Mm -hmm. So they say Muslims who endorse traditional Sharia rules are fanatics, mm -hmm. and they're especially fanatical if they adopt some kind of jihad doctrine, which is going to lead them to rebel against the French liberal dictatorship or the British or the Dutch liberal dictatorship. Uh, on the other hand, most imperial policymakers realized that Muslims were far from monolithic, that there are different groups of Muslims with different views. And they recognized that certain Muslims, especially elite Western educated Muslims, were re receptive to notions of progress. Mm -hmm. And beginning in the first half of the 19th century, you have independent Muslim states in Egypt and Ottoman Turkey initiating efforts to bring some measure of progress to their own societies, embarking on a self-civilizing, what's called a self-civilizing mission with parallels in other regions. So it's not just Turkey and Egypt that are doing this. You have Japan doing the same thing, China doing the same thing, Thailand doing the same thing. Earlier on, you have Russia doing the same thing. Uh, these Muslim states uh, adopted, and these Muslim states, when they're thinking, okay, how can we bring progress to our Muslim populations? They say, let's look at the models of the Western European empire. So let's start ruling our own Muslim populations in the same way that Western empires are ruling Muslim po populations. 
By the early 20th century, some Muslim elites become quite secular. And at this time, you have independent Muslim states in places like Turkey and Iran utilize authoritarian rules to rule to compel their populations to fully embrace a Western style progress. So that's where you get like an Ataturk or Reza Shah, Pahlavi. Ataturk, Turkey, and then Turkey and Iran become kind of the model for all of the Muslim states in the post-colonial period. So we're going to talk uh, about I mean, that. Uh, later just, on. just yeah, just on that point of, uh, of Istanbul, um, Turkey, uh, and the Ottoman Empire, and, and Ataturk. Uh, I've just come back from Turkey uh, uh, a couple of days ago, and I, I remember I was being driven um, through uh, parts of uh, the o- older parts of Istanbul. And we, we went past a, a building, and, my, and the driver said to me. Um, do you know that that's the that that was the place of the oldest factory in Istanbul, the first one ever to be built? It's obviously in the 19th century, and he said to me, "Do you know what they made there?" I said, "No, they made fez, fezes. These are the 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 uh, Ottoman hats that were quite distinctive of, of that time." And and apparently, what happened was when Ataturk uh, came to power in the uh, 1920s. Um, he actually banned the Muslim men from wearing the fez, but he actually also told them to wear bowler hats, of all things. And bowler hats obviously have a rim. So I said to him, why on earth would Ataturk legislate that Muslim men wear bowler hats? I mean, I just don't get it. I mean, it's hardly, you know, why? And of course, the the reason is obvious is because if you're if you're praying as a Muslim in your fez, you can actually prostrate very easily. If you've got a bowler hat on, it's actually preventing you from doing sujud, from actually doing prostration. And it gets worse than that. So not only was there a direct attack on the ability of Muslims to pray by Ataturk's uh, regime, um, that those ulama, those Muslim scholars who refuse to conform to the law and wear bowler hats um, were executed they were literally hung on the gallows in Istanbul. And I, when I heard that, I was absolutely horrified. I thought, this is just authoritarian, secular, liberal regime. This is the worst form of tyranny imaginable, killing people for refusing to wear certain kinds of hats, of all things. Um, but I actually went past the building that was the the, the, the first factory in, uh, in Istanbul that made these hats. That was closed down by Ataturk, um, by active edict uh, and people who continue to wear them were literally exterminated uh, and ulama died distinguished ulama were actually executed by by this so i don't think it's a very vivid example of what you're talking about him yeah yeah so this is something that we are because we'll, we'll go ahead and talk about uh these authoritarian policies but mm. for people who believe that western rule involves freedom of speech or freedom of dress for instance, this is historically incorrect. Uh, most of the time, most people who have been under liberal rule over the past 200 years, so British, Dutch, uh, French rule across the Muslim world and indeed in, in non-Muslim lands, Hindu lands, Buddhist lands, Amerindian populations uh, have not. Liberalism for them is not associated with free speech, freedom to dress. It's associated with a compelled acceptance of Western style development ideas or uh, notions of progress in human rights. I should also mention before we go further. So one of the other things that you have in the late uh, in, in the 19th century 
um, is in the later half of the 19th century, you also have large-scale Muslim re religious reform efforts or movements begin to emerge across the globe. So these movements reinterpreted some portion of Islamic scriptural texts and doctrines in a matter which legitimated progress or human rights. And I, I should once again emphasize when I'm talking about progress or human rights is in quotation marks. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. But the boldest of these Muslim reformers abandoned most Sharia norms and the doctrine of jihad, at least as they were traditionally understood. You also have other reformers opting for more limited changes. So some of the famous Muslim reform movements that we find between the late 19th century and the early 20th century are the Young Ottomans in Turkey, the Salafian movement centered in Egypt, the Aligar movement in India, Jadidism in Central Asia, and the Kaumuda in Southeast Asia. As we will see, the empires developed methods for governance that accounted for the fact that different Muslim groups had differing attitudes towards progress. So now I've kind of set the table, and now I'm going to talk about how the overall the empires crafted a Muslim policy, which within this context uh, uh, centered on advancing three interrelated projects, the Human Rights Project, the Religious Reform Project, and the Security Project. Mm. So... Um, that being said, let's uh, go ahead and talk about these. Uh, so uh, let's talk, let's start with the Human Rights Project and the Religious Reform Project. So recall that in the 18th century, liberals blended a project to promote human rights with a project of religious reform. Although this blending of projects was initiated within Europe, it was soon shaped, it soon shaped imperial rule outside of Europe. So thus, by the early 19th century, imperial policymakers were promoting human rights uh, among Hindus in India, and policymakers were also promoting the reform of Hinduism to make it compatible with human rights. So they were saying, oh, let's reinterpret all Hindu texts as banning minor marriage. Let's reinterpret all Hindu texts as not kind of endorsing the caste system, for instance. Uh, then by the mid-19th century, imperial policymakers said, okay, well, let's extend this to Muslims as well. We're going to reform their Islamic religion so that they also adopt human rights. They need to reinterpret their Islamic texts so that they are consistent with uh, human rights. So they began offering encouragement and support to indigenous Muslim reform movements that are seen as progressive in character. So what today call moderate Muslims, the Muslim reformers, the Muslim Martin Luther... This, yeah, these are ideas that they have in the late 19th uh, century. Uh, now, efforts to reform. Uh, so, so when we talk about the reform of Islam, yes, there are the imperial governors, kind of the British, French and Dutch uh, figures like, you know, let's say a, a, a Lord Cromer. They have a role in promoting Islamic reform, uh, but also the indigenous Muslim population has a role in and promoting Islamic reform, so Muhammad Abdul Said Ahmed Khan and whatnot. It's important to recognize that Muslim reform is not simply just a Western project. It is also a project of certain segments of the Muslim population. So they kind of cooperate together uh, in, in order to carry these uh, reform projects forth. So in terms of this co cooperative religious reform project that we're talking about, uh, it had to grapple with the institutional organization of Muslim societies. In the pre-modern period, Orthodox Islam was typically propagated through a vast uh, infrastructure of religious institutions supported by state officials, private persons, and endowments, or waqf. 
there were elementary religious schools or kutabs that provided basic instruction to the populace. Or there were religious scholars that were trained at Islamic colleges called madrasas. Uh, there was public preaching and daily worship, which took place in mosques. Uh, religious scholars adjudicated disputes in Sharia courts. Uh, Sufi orders or tariqas uh, operated convents, kind of Sufi convents and charities. The state itself had religious features, so rulers often claimed religious titles like caliph or amir al-mu'minin, and they would support these high-level religious offices like Sheikh al-Islam or Sheikh al-Azhar, state mufti, or Sheikh head of a Sufi order. When the European empires the European empires encountered these infrastructures when they invaded Muslim lands, and they declined to destroy these vast this vast religious infrastructure because they recognize that simply destroying this infrastructure, all these mosques and charities and Sharia courts would provoke a revolt from the Muslim population. The empires also recognized that controlling the religious infrastructure could aid them in controlling the population and could help them advance their related projects of moral progress or human rights and Islamic reform. So in order to move ahead with these projects, in order to manipulate their religious infrastructure, uh, the empires adopted a couple of uh, key methods. So the first method that imperial officials accepted was to tacitly divide the Muslim population of any country into two broad groups. So on the one hand, there are the good Muslims who are favorable to progress in European rule. And on the other hand, there are the bad Muslims who are inclined towards, quote unquote, fanaticism. So being uh, tied to traditional Islamic teachings uh, okay. and also revolt. So in today's language, we would call those two groups the moderate Muslims, brackets, the good ones, and the radicals, uh, brackets, the bad ones. Uh, that, that would be perhaps a more contemporary expression of this. Uh, these two groups. Yeah, as we'll see, so many of the notions that are used in the colonial period have just, they basically just switched around the labels. Right. Uh, so civilizational progress becomes international development. Right. Muslim fanaticism becomes Muslim radicalism. Uh, this this is one of the things that makes it difficult for people to understand the continuity between the pre-modern and the modern yeah. period. So it's not accidental that they will like relabel these different um, different phenomena. Interesting. Uh, so sometimes you have a distinction without a difference in terms of these different labels that are used. Um, Okay, so you have your good Muslims, you have your bad Muslims, uh, and then officials sought to build cooperative, imperial officials sought to build cooperative relations with good Muslims and steadily increase their social and political influence. Meanwhile, uh, officials sought to repress bad Muslims or fanatical Muslims and decrease their social and political influence. Officials ensured that good Muslim religious authorities were accorded management and leadership positions within re the religious infrastructure. So they said, okay, if you're a good Muslim, you can be the imam at a mosque or teach at a madrasa or head up a Sufi order. Otherwise, you're not allowed or we're going to make it very difficult for you. Mm. They also went ahead and they said, okay, we have these good Muslim religious authorities like Malik Sai in West Africa or Uthman bin Yahya. Uh, and they went ahead and they elevated these uh, certain Muslim religious authorities. And these Muslim religious authorities are the ones that they picked. Uh, issued proclamations which praised European rule, which command the commanded the populace to obey the empires, which uh, forbade jihad revolts, which said, if you're engaged in a jihad revolt, you have to uh, surrender. Uh, 
Um, so uh, one of the, so when when we talk about the ulama, when we talk about Muslim scholars in this era, there is a section of the ulama which is allied with the European empires and is basically saying to everyone, except liberal authoritarian rule, do not resist. Okay, those people get positions, they get funding, they get to teach at a madrasa. Uh, the other ones who are resisting, as we'll see, they, uh, for instance, get put in jail or they're exiled. Um, those people who are not going ahead and praising uh, the European government. So, so we'll, we'll see that, you know, some of these major figures in Muslim history, the Muslim reformists like uh, Syed Ahmed Khan or Muhammad Abdu, they're famous for uh, going ahead and saying, oh, the French government is a very, the French empire is a very good thing. The British empire is a very good thing. You should submit. Go ahead and make sure that you submit to these empires. Um, now, whenever they find these, whenever the empires find these good Muslim uh, figures, uh, they will go ahead and start patronizing them. So they will patronize religious authorities and intellectuals who advocate moral progress in Islamic reforms. They will give them honorary titles, high religious positions, political offices, grants, stipends, paid jobs, and assistance in publishing articles and books. So some notable examples of these figures who were patronized by the empires, I already mentioned a couple of them, Syed Ahmed Khan or Sir Syed Ahmed Khan. I was going to say, you mentioned his title. He was, he was knighted by Queen Victoria and you, uh, for some reason. Um, so <laughs> Yeah. Service to the British Empire. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, you have Amir Ali also in India. You have Muhammad Abdu and Mustafa al Maragi in Egypt. You have Muhammad al Hajwi in Morocco. You have Sir Ahmed Ubello in Nigeria, once again knighted for his service to the empire. By contrast, the fanatical Muslims are not getting knighted. They're, they're not right. eligible for a knighthood. So they are denied uh, patronage and influential positions within the religious infrastructure, which is now controlled by the European empires. So the second method the European empires do aside from, so the first is let's divide into good Muslim and bad Muslim and patronize the good Muslims and repress the bad Muslims. The second thing the empires do is they assume control of the Muslim courts and legal institutions, mm -hmm. uh, and they constantly alter Sharia-based laws, the Sharia-based laws that are applied in these courts in the name of moral progress or human rights. So what they do is they generate these systems of reformed Sharia law. So the British Empire generates what's known as Anglo-Muhammadan law, which is a hybrid of British liberal law and Sharia law. The French Empire generates droit musulman algerian. Forgive me, I, I can't pronounce French well. Um, so it's a law that they generate in Algeria. Uh, the Dutch Empire uh, produces a adat-oriented hybrid system of Islamic law and liberal Dutch law. And in these legal systems that are generated by the uh, imperial powers, a traditional Sharia law is partially maintained in the field of family matters, so marriage, divorce, custody, and inheritance. However, in almost all other areas, Sharia law is replaced by liberal laws, which are reported for, for which are imported from Europe. And of course, this replacement, they won't say we're replacing or we're eliminating Sharia law. They will say, oh, no, we're just reinterpreting Sharia law. We have an interpretation of the Sharia that outside of the field of family law, None of the commercial provisions apply. None of the criminal provisions apply in the modern era. Maybe it's because they conflict with Maslaha, something along these lines. Hmm. Um, so the third method that the empires use is to reform the Muslim population, get them to accept human rights, is they transform the Muslim educational sector. Now, in the pre-modern period, the Muslim educational sector was dominated by religious schooling. 
The empires promoted Western education for Muslims, especially the elites, with the aim of exposing them to Western forms of knowledge and ideas about progress. And it was expected that Muslims who were educated in this manner would gradually incorporate Western ideas about progress into their religious tradition, and that this would foster a reformed Islam. The empires also established ordinary Western schools, as well as hybrid institutions in the colonies. So hybrid institutions, the hybrid institutions that the Western empires created combined Western education with some measure of Arabic Islamic education. So imperial officials created some entirely new hybrid institutions. Famous examples are Muhammad Anglo Oriental College in India, Gordon College in Sudan, Katsina College in Nigeria, and the French developed an entire system of colonial madrasas in North and West Africa. In other cases, the imperial officials uh, didn't establish entirely new institutions of Islamic learning. Sometimes they simply tried to take over, with varying degrees of success, existing famous traditional madrasas. And they said, we're going to turn this traditional institution, which only teaches pre-modern Islamic uh, the pre-modern Islamic tradition, we're going to kind of uh, restructure it such that it teaches pre-modern Islamic teachings, but also liberal teachings. So they said, we're going to do this with Al-Azhar. We're going to do this with Al-Zaytuna. We're going to do this with Al-Qarawiyin. Um, and through these hybrid institutions, uh, the empires recognized that if you had an institution that was, if, if you go ahead and take over Azhar or Al-Qarawiyin, or if you establish a institutions like Muhammad Anglo Oriental College, you're going to have future Muslim intellectuals and even religious scholars studying there. They're going to absorb these notions of progress, and then they're going to integrate this into a reformed understanding of Islam. So they're going to become moderate Muslims. Mm. Indeed. Okay, so now we move on. So I've talked a little bit about how the empires advance the human rights project and the religious reform project. So once again, the summary there is they take over the educational institutions, they take over the legal institutions, and they create a reformed Islam, which endorses human rights through interpretations of the reinterpretations of the tradition. Okay, there's also a security project element akin to what we now call counterterrorism. So, as indicated uh, previously, the European empires utilized authoritarian rule to control uh, indigenous populations and compel them to accept progress. Authoritarian rule was typically justified with reference to a key liberal legal doctrine known as the state of exception or the state of emergency. This doctrine holds that the government is not bound by ordinary liberal laws, including human rights protections, when an extraordinary threat exists. So if there's a military invasion, if there's a natural disaster, if there's a pandemic, you can do things that you couldn't ordinarily do. So if there's a pandemic or a military invasion, you can restrict people's freedom of speech. You can restrict them from where they travel. Uh, you can do things like take people's property in a way that you couldn't do in other situations. Mm. So uh, whenever you have a state of exception, the government is given maximal discretion to counter the threat which has popped up. For the European empires, indigenous populations were considered an extraordinary threat akin to a pandemic or a military invasion or a natural disaster. They said these indigenous, indigenous populations don't want to be ruled by the European empires. And they're potentially going to revolt against us. And if they revolt, they're going to do things like attack European officials. They're going to attack settlers. And 
In fact, they had reason to believe that this would be the case. So throughout the global south, throughout the colonized lands, not only Muslim lands, you have these indigenous revolts. You have Amerindians revolting. You have sub-Saharan Africans revolting. You have Hindu Indians revolting. Uh, and these revolts that uh, are present in the late 19th and early 20th century, like Sepoy Rebellion, uh, you have these revolt, you have these groups that are revolting and they're use making use of bombings, assassinations, robberies. And initially, the Europeans start dis describe these uh, revolts as revolts. Uh, but uh, there's a bit of a terminological change that happens in the early 20th century. So by the early 20th century, Europeans commonly use the term terrorism to describe indigenous peoples who are revolting against the empires. Interesting. Very interesting. So th th this is, again, an example of a, the change in the label on the tin, but the, the contents remaining the same. The same concept is there. So so th th this, of course, everyone's against terrorism. Terrorism is, by definition, bad. But, of course, it's used in highly political, highly uh, controversial ways basically to demonize um, people who are fighting against the oppressors. And we see this in other parts of, uh, dare I say, in the occupied territories and so on in, in the Middle East at the moment, where, you know, Palestinians are, are routinely called terrorists in the Western media um, for resisting authoritarian military rule over them. Yeah, so this is basically, I mean, all of these groups, whether you're talking about, you know, African National Congress, whether you're talking about, you know, um, Hindu uh proponents of uh kind of indian and hindu proponents of indian independence all of these groups are referred to as uh, terrorist groups um uh when they're under this type of a uh, colonial uh, rule um so responding to this indigenous threat of revolts or quote-unquote terrorism the mm -hmm. empires instituted special security measures, and uh, these security measures were implemented through the military. So their soldiers, they use soldiers, intelligence organizations, military courts, uh, and they said, "Okay, how are we going to rule over the indigenous people? We are going to we are going to use what they called counterinsurgency operations." So counterinsurgency operations in the colonial period resemble what we today call counterterrorism operations. Mm, mm. So colonial security measures were fundamentally discriminatory. So when we're talking about this authoritarian system of security that's that's applied not only to Muslim people, but all of the colonized people, um, uh, these uh, security measures are fundamentally discriminatory. So they don't target just individuals. They target entire groups based on their racial, cultural, and religious traits. Uh, so such measures were applied to indigenous populations, but they excluded Europeans. So for instance, if they had restrictions on freedom of speech, they said, okay, Europeans have more free spe speech rights or right to privacy that the indigenous population. So the settlers have these rights, but not the indigenous population. Muslims were subject to the same authoritarian security measures as other indigenous groups, Hindus, Buddhists, Amerindians, and so forth. However, in the case of Muslims, such measures were somewhat unique in that they uh, focused unique, they focused on uh, intense forms of, or they involved an intense form of religious discrimination, which was informed by colonial concerns or imperial concerns over fanaticism and jihad rebellion. So some of the indigenous revolts that the Europeans had to deal with were more tribal or racial in character. But they said, okay, when it comes to the Muslims, What's really going to inspire them to revolt is their religion. So we need to pay special attention to uh, religious uh, matters. Yeah. 
So in a colonial context, Muslims and other indigenous people were not simply denied the right to vote. Security measures also denied them freedom of expression. So laws prohibited indigenous people from insulting the imperial government, criticizing its policies, or verbally inciting hatred of the colonial government. So the British have what are known as the sedition laws. The Dutch have what are known as purse delict laws. Uh, the French have something known as the code d'indigenat. Um, Imperial officials, uh, on the, using these laws, they went ahead and said, okay, Muslims which publish newspapers that criticize European policies or European violence towards Muslims or European rule over Muslims uh, should be shut down. So if you publish one of these newspapers, you're going to be prosecuted and we're going to ban the newspaper. So, for instance, Al Afghani and Abdu, who are famous uh, Muslim figures, initially published a uh, paper called Al Urwa Al Wufqa, which was critical initially of the British Empire. They shut that down. Uh, Ibn Badis, who's a famous Muslim reformer in Algeria, he had a paper known as Al Muntaqid. Okay, the French shut that down. Sharakat Islam, which was this. Um, uh, Indonesian Muslim organization had a newspaper called Utusan Hindia, so that was shut down. Um, this is important to keep in mind because a lot of the times people will say liberalism is about free speech, uh, which is not really true. Liberalism is about free speech for white liberals and everyone else needs to be shut down based on accusations of terrorism and extremism. So it's free speech for the minority and uh, speech limitations for the majority. Uh, and in fact, you know, people who didn't uh, agree with these free speech limitations in Algeria, uh, in India, and these other places, they were arrested and sometimes killed. So the notion that you can kill people simply based on what they say is a key element of colonial policy. If you start speaking out against the colonial empires and liberal values, uh, you will be executed, you'll be arrested and in many cases executed. Um, this is this is quite ironic that now you have all these self-identified liberals saying, how could you kill someone just on the basis of what they say? Whereas for 200, for two centuries, this is liberal policy in the Muslim world. Yeah, you should kill people for what they say if they promote extremist, fanatical ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so these uh, security measures uh, denied uh, not only do you have these limitations on free speech, uh, but these colonial security measures also deny freedom of association. So if you're living under a uh, European regime in the Muslim world, you need a permit in order to meet in groups. Uh, Muslim religious organizations, religious events and political meetings are, were shut down when officials deem them undesirable. Uh, so they said, if you have, if you want to have a political protest, we're going to shut it down. So for instance, the Moroccans, uh, we're protesting against this uh, French effort to, for instance, uh, go ahead and reform the culture of the Berber uh, Moroccans and take them away from Islam. So they had a protest and the French uh, shut it down. So they would repress kind of any anti-colonial uh, protests. Um, uh, security measures also denied rights of privacy to indigenous persons. Uh, so officials regularly searched their bodies and homes on a massive scale. These were known as cordon and search operations. 
Officials said if you're a Muslim person or if you're an indigenous person generally, uh, any question we ask you, you have to give it to us, otherwise you'll be arrested. Uh, they also, uh, imperial officials also instituted extensive surveillance systems. So in the case of Muslims, the empires established official official departments and networks of informants to surveil Muslim religious scholars, madrasas, mosques, and Sufi orders. So the French had the Bureau Arab, the Dutch had the Cantor Boer in Inlandish Zakin, once again, forgive my pronunciation. Uh, these officials and these uh, colonial organizations controlled and tracked Muslims' movements inside regions and between regions. So Muslims were banned from traveling outside of their local districts without a permit. Also, when whenever Muslims started saying problematic things, which were seen as overly fanatic, they were banned or deported from specific regions. Uh, so a classic way of dealing with a Muslim who <laughs> criticizes liberalism is to deport them, not deport them from Europe, although you have that as well. But even if they're in their own country, deport them, strip them of their residency and deport them out. And you have all these famous figures like Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi in Algeria, deported. Imam Bonjo in Indonesia, deported. Amadou Bamba in Senegal, deported. And they said, when we kind of are going to start deporting people and also track their movements, track the movements of all the Muslims, they're especially concerned with controlling and tracking Muslims who are making Hajj. Because when they say when Muslims get together in Hajj, maybe they're going to share some anti-colonial ideas. Uh, so we need to go ahead and closely monitor who's going on Hajj and what people who come back from Hajj do. Mm, interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so these security measures, so you have the deportations, also the security measures, which are characteristic of colonial rule, authorize officials to detain indigenous persons for lengthy periods without trial based on general suspicions or secret, int secret intelligence. And when these people are detained and tried, uh, they are basically tried by military courts. So you have indigenous people, they're denied protections like juries, access to lawyers, rights of appeal, restrictions on the use of the death penalty. Um, also, the laws, uh, these colonial laws say that when you detain someone, uh, they are uh, you are empowered to use violence with minimal justification and limited liability. So, for instance, you have the if you're a colonial official and you start uh, taking you arrest a Muslim on uh, suspicions of fanaticism. Uh, you can administer corporal discipline. Also, there are no inquests for people who are killed during security operations. So they specifically say if you start going, if you're a colonial official, like a British or French official, and you kill someone, uh, we're not going to ask you to provide a justification or documentation on why you killed them. Just say, you know, they were rebelling or they threatened me. So this is a way of giving colonial officials protection uh, and empowering them to use violence without the threat of accountability. Yeah, also, during there, time, there's, a, there's the famous case in during the French Algerian uh, rule of uh, the chief interrogator there who, who had been accused of torturing and killing um, Algerian Muslims, of course, uh, on behalf of the French state. Uh, it, it came out that he he had authorization to, to torture from the highest levels of the French state, i.e. President Mitterrand himself, actually, that this was something uh, that came out in, in the media. Um, so it wasn't just some kind of rogue element in the security services like they claimed. It was authorized by the French state to keep, I mean, I mean torture, explicit torture and killings of uh, Muslims in Algeria on a massive, yeah, so on a massive scale. 
Yeah. So whenever there are times, especially when there are times of unrest, like the Algerian revolution or the Indonesian revolution, you have kind of uh, the empires, these imperial officials start using mass torture in the form of beatings, electrocutions, rapes. And one of the other things they do is a lot of extrajudicial killing and disappearances. Yeah. So if yeah. anyone is against the government, expresses opinion different from the government. So they say something which is critical of the French or the Dutch government, they get executed and there's no record. Um, uh, so this is, so sometimes when we think about extrajudicial killings or disappearances or torture, we say this has nothing to do with liberal rule, but that's because what people are taught in Western schools is a extremely incomplete version of liberal rule. Also, when people say, why do Muslims have certain, why do some Muslims have certain, have a critical perspective on liberalism? It's because they take out, they go ahead and delete out the authoritarian rule, the extrajudicial killings, uh, all of this kind of stuff. And then they say, you know, why don't Muslims praise this system that we want to institute? Uh, in the first half of the 20th century, you also have an interesting phenomenon. So you have a small number of Muslim migrants from the colonies take up residence in Europe, partially to because in the colonies, in, there, or in, in Europe itself, in the metropole, uh, there are some increased legal protections. However, these have limitations. So the Muslims who migrate to Europe, who, who migrate to, let's say, France or Britain, spend time in Europe in the early 20th century, they're immediately targeted with security measures modeled on those of the colonies. So the British and the French and the Dutch say, okay, even people within the Netherlands or within France or within Britain, we treat them differently in terms of security measures based on whether they are Muslim or white. Uh, so, for instance, if they are Muslim, they're going to be subject to mass surveillance, arbitrary arrest, searches and deportations, torture, and even extrajudicial killings, which ordinarily happens in the form of arresting some, let's say, Algerian or Indian and killing them in custody. And you even have cases where uh, you will have, let's say, the French engage in a mass killing of Muslim protesters. So this is like a 1961 uh, Paris massacre. Yeah. Uh, and they actually created also a special agency. The French created a special agency uh, specialized in applying security measures to Muslim migrants, which was like service de surveillance et de protection des indigènes nord-africains. Once again, forgive my uh, pronunciation. Uh, so in so so when we're talking about these measures, these authoritarian measures, these security measures, these counterterrorism measures, uh, these are measures that are applied inside the colonies and even outside the colonies to Muslim migrants who are in Europe, uh, and they're applied most intensively to Muslims who are categorized as fanatics. Targeting fanatics was seen not only as good in the sense that it enhanced security, but it also had a more general social function. So it stigmatized and repressed orthodox Islamic forms of speech and practice, thereby encouraging Muslim populations to embrace a reformed Islam more consistent with liberal values and human rights. Okay, so you don't want to be arrested, right? You don't want surveillance. You don't want to be disappeared. Become a moderate Muslim. That's mm -hmm. a way to avoid that. Become a very vocal moderate Muslim. You know, don't wear a fez. You know, wear your bowler hat. No problem. Yes. Uh, so that is kind of what I had to say about Muslim policy in the colonial 
period. And I can switch to now I have some comments on Muslim policy in the post colonial mm. era. But before yep. getting into those, uh, stop for a moment and ask if you have anything that you'd like to comment on. Or say. No, I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in this transition from the colonial era to the post colonial era in terms, not just in terms of because you, you see a strong continue having read your paper. Uh, you see a very strong continuity between the old world and the new world, the, the post-Second World War, post-colonial era. You see very strong continuities. And I'm fascinated by that, not just by the language. So you have fanatics are now called radicals or uh, counterinsurgency is now called counterterrorism. But but you, you, you uh, attribute the actions of NGOs being um, very similar to the actions of Christian missionary activity before. So you're basically saying it it's... You know, plus our chance, nothing has really changed in some ways. Okay, okay, we're not physically occupying these countries now, but there is still a kind of neo-colonialism. I, 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 don't, I don't anticipate what you're saying, but are you saying, uh, will you be saying that there's a neo-colonialist? Exactly, uh, exactly. Reality? Same structure, Same very right. similar structure. Right. Because I'm interested in see how you will flesh that out as, as you're about to do, actually. So. Yeah, so um, the relation. So let's switch to. We've been talking about co colonial era Muslim policy. Mm -hmm. now, now let's talk about post World War II, post colonial Muslim policy. So the relationship between the colonial and the post colonial periods mm -hmm. can largely be understood in terms of power. Right. What do we mean when we talk about power? A state has power insofar as it can cause others to act in accordance with its will. And this can be done by threatening harms. Like a military, like military attacks. It can also be done by offering benefits, so offering economic goods. These are two ways to get other people to follow your will, to exert power over them. Mm. Now, such methods become more effective when there is greater inequality. So, military threats are the most effective when directed at those who are militarily weaker, not people who are equal. Uh, and offers of material goods are most effective. Uh, as expressions of power when they're directed at those who are poor. And both the colonial and the post-colonial eras are characterized by enormous inequality. In each era, Western states have utilized their superior technological and economic power, te superior technological and economic capacities to create strong militaries and great economic wealth. And this enables Western states to exercise power over weaker non-Western peoples, Muslim or non-Muslim, through military threats and also through offers of economic benefits. So donations, loans, investment, trade opportunities, technology transfers like IMF uh, type stuff. Now, during the colonial era, Western states typically exercised power through occupation and formal rule of non-Western lands. Uh, the end of World War II marked, uh, marked the beginning of the post-colonial era. So at this time, the empires were dissolved and non-Western peoples were granted formal political independence. The UN was founded, United Nations was founded, and the United States, rather than Britain or France or the Netherlands, became the dominant Western power. And that was not accidental. It was owing to its unrivaled technological economic capacity. So generally speaking, if you want to know how powerful a state is today, look at its GDP and its GDP per capita. That's the easiest way to quantify power. Interesting. Uh, so the UN is an international mechanism for promoting progress, or what we today call development. Uh, so the UN is structured, but the UN is structured in a very specific way. So it's structured to give special influence 
to Western states. Uh, Western states contribute a highly disproportionate amount of UN funding, and they have a special position in the UN Security Council. I just want to just, just sorry, just on that very point, the UN Security Council. Is it not the case that Britain and France are permanent members of the European of the Security Council? I mean, how many nations in the world are there? I don't know, two, three hundred countries in the world, and there's just a tiny number. And Britain and France. And of course, America uh, just have yeah. uh, permanent members of that. Um, are, are any, uh, just a question to you, I actually don't know the answers. Are any Muslim countries permanent members of the UN Security Council? No, I mean, people no. from the global south generally are not given that position. So this is part, if you want to control the UN, you have to be the people who are funding it. You have to be the people who have the position on the permanent council. Also, it helps that the UN is headquartered in the United in, States. In New York. So the UN is structured in order to give special influence to a Western states. I, I'm just amazed that in the United Nations, there is no Muslim permanent Muslim voice on the UN Security Council. But there yeah. is for France, there is for Britain, there is for the United States. And I believe China and Russia have... Uh, uh, but that's extraordinary. It, it just shows the asymmetry of power and influence within the purportedly, you know, the United Nations. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, these are places where there's uh, minimal, uh, minimal power in the uh, UN. Right. Um, so the UN oversees various development programs across the world, progress programs across the world, and it promulgates an evolving set of US or Western influenced international norms related to matters like human rights and also terrorism. Since the 1980s, a worldwide network of largely secular NGOs has also acquired a vastly enlarged role in international development, working closely with the UN. Now, notably, these NGOs are also structured in a particular way. The NGOs which function across the globe are funded primarily by Western institutions, states, foundations, corporations. These are the primary funders of NGOs across the globe. And because they fund NGOs across the globe, they can direct NGOs to advance Western-influenced UN policies. So if you're an NGO, in order to operate, in order to pay your staff, you need money. Now, the fact that you get that money from the U.S., from Australia, from Facebook, from Google, from Nike uh, affects what kind of human rights projects you're going to be involved in, what kind of counterterrorism projects you're going to be involved in. So I guess, uh, is there some kind of phrase, whoever pays the pipe or calls the tune? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So that's kind of what you have going on with not only the U.N. itself, but also these NGOs. So in the post-colonial era, Western states no longer formally rule over non-Western peoples. However, they continue to exercise power in more indirect ways, especially through the UN and through NGOs. Uh, threatening harms and offering benefits, Western <coughs> states demand that non-Western states comply with evolving UN norms, allow NGOs to operate within their borders, cooperate with these NGOs, and heed NGO recommendations. And based on this situation, many scholars have argued that modern global governance resembles colonialism, especially as it relates to Muslims. So it's neocolonialism. Right. Western states remain dominant. The UN can be seen as a continuation of multilateral treaty organizations created by the Western empires to coordinate their global development efforts. So even during the colonial era, the Western governments would get together and they'd form treaties of how to 
globally develop the entire world. A famous example is the 1884 Berlin Africa Conference. Another example is the post-World War I mandate system. And then not only do you have kind of the UN uh, resembling these treaty arrangements between Western powers to uh, bring progress to the world, but you all, the secular NGOs today resemble the colonial era missionary NGOs, Christian missionary NGOs. Mm. I, I also, I, I'm, I'm personally impressed by the, the role that U.S. Co corporations that are all American, like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube or Google and so on. Uh, in um, I remember uh, six months ago, I think it, I think it was in Indonesia. Indonesia, uh, Google actually, uh, uh, I think the Indonesian government had actually uh, issued uh, something on social media about um, uh, Muslims who had same-sex attraction, they could get help here and so on. They were certainly not promoting the LGBT agenda. And, and Google, uh, I think it was Google or YouTube, they actually pulled the plug on this and said, we will not allow this kind of uh, official government uh, assistance to to certain people to be uh, allowed on our platforms. And they actually censored it. And, and this caused a very small ripple on the on the on the on the the world stage but i just noticed it and i thought how extraordinary that these american corporations can determine what the indonesian government can say uh it happened to be saying was totally in accord with islamic teaching and actually censored it so it wasn't able to promote the message uh, uh through social media and i thought how extraordinary that this has almost a planetary hegemony that you you really have to operate according to american corporate corporate views which are western secular liberal views if you want to succeed I mean, it's just the the asymmetry of power then between a u.s company and indonesian indonesian government actually being censored by this and not able to promote its policies yeah so all of these governments i mean across the muslim world these are complex societies uh so you have certain people you do have certain people that are liberals in these societies and then you have other people who are non-liberal at least to some extent and want to preserve their traditions to some extent and there's within all of these countries there is kind of like a conflict or the disagreement Although the U.S. Uh, uses its power to go ahead and make sure one side is favored, or at least to attempt to do that. But that's kind of an ongoing struggle that you see in countries across the world. And certain countries who are stronger, like, let's say, China, will be more in a position to limit foreign yes. influence. Yes. And I, other countries I, I, which are economically report. weaker will yeah. be in less of a position uh, to limit uh, American influence. Mm, absolutely. No, I just, I just meant to mention that you, you're right, that these geopolitical powerhouses, China particularly, and other countries like Russia, do, do appear to be pushing back uh, quite powerfully uh, against this Western hegemony. And of course, in Putin's case, uh, at great cost, we're at war with him at the moment. So, Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what you have, I, I mean, one thing you have to, so one thing that when we talk about the expression of liberal power in some of these countries, one should not imagine that their rulers or the population are just automatically sign on to these things. Some of them do, uh, but a lot of them will just simply say, realistically, we're in a situation where there's a huge power imbalance and we can try and resist to the extent possible, uh, but we're also afraid of a military invasion. So imagine you're in some Muslim country and you say, I disagree with uh, certain human rights norms. 
uh, you mentioned LGBT as an example, and this is appropriate because this is a, a, a big one right now. Uh, but if you were to agree with these human rights norms, you, you might say, I disagree, I want to preserve certain elements of the indigenous culture. Uh, but when you say that, you have to met, you have to weigh the consequences of that. So the consequences of that might involve a military invasion. Uh, there might involve some kind of economic boycott, like they will try and destroy your economy. Um, and some countries are in a position to stand up to threats of this type, like China to a lesser extent, Russia. Many countries throughout the global South, like Muslim countries are in less of a position. So sometimes they find themselves pushed in a certain liberal direction, despite the fact that the people and indeed the government uh, seek for a situation of greater independence. So that's part of the complexity uh, involved here. No. Uh, I mean, you can think of it yourself, maybe, uh, may, or we could imagine, imagine we, you have a friend and that friend is a pious Muslim and that pious Muslim says something like, you know, no, you know what, I, uh, I don't believe in shaking women's hands or I don't believe in drinking alcohol. And then someone puts a gun to their head or someone says, you're going to lose your job unless you drink alcohol and shake women's hands or say that, you know, you agree that there should, that sex outside of marriage is that there's no problem with it. You can have someone who's committed to a particular set of values and would prefer to live by those values because he or she is subject to power. He might do things like take a drink of alcohol or express a certain type of opinion, or a woman might take off her hijab regardless of what he or she would want if this power imbalance didn't exist. Mm -hmm. But the situation of the world over the in the modern period of, is one of these very extreme power imbalances. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so as explained above, while well, liberal Western empires governed Muslims, uh, historically in the colonial period by using an intense form of authoritarian rule and by operating a vast religious infrastructure. The, the same basic, basic methods of governance characterize many post-colonial Muslim states, uh, and they are similar to early 20th century Turkey or Iran. Uh, so, these, so many of these post-colonial states employ authoritarian rule. They also operate vast religious infrastructures, and they do this in order to bring progress or development to their Muslim populations. As a general principle, many of these states can be described as liberal or liberally inclined, although there are a few exceptions. Uh, and one of the signs of the, the general liberal character of these post-colonial Muslim states is they usually have legal systems which consist primarily in liberal laws inherited from the European empires or borrowed from liberal Western states. You may have Sharia norms, but they will be limited. They'll only be applied partially in the field of family laws. And you might have uh, general Islamic values to some extent underlie certain restrictions on blasphemy or sex or, or drug use. Notably, since the 1960s, there has been significant Muslim migration to Western countries. By far, the largest immigrant populations are found in Western Europe, where colonizing countries have accepted immigrants from the lands they formerly colonized, often as workers. In the post-colonial era, you have a situation where liberal policymakers associated with the UN, Western states, and post-colonial Muslim state, post-colonial Muslim states are tasked with governing Muslims. The methods they use resemble those characteristic of colonial Muslim policy. And this is not surprising given that post-colonial policymakers share many goals with colonial 
policymakers, and they also share many of their assumptions about Muslims. Perhaps the most important of these assumptions is that Muslims fall into two broad categories. So there are good Muslims who are receptive to human rights and accepting of existing political structures. There are also bad Muslims who are inclined towards fanaticism. However, over the past two decades, the traditional concept of Muslim fanaticism has been relabeled Muslim radicalism. So post-colonial post-colonial policymakers seek to aid and patronize good Muslim and counter Muslims who are called uh, fanatics or radicals. Yeah. I noticed, by the way, just in, in the media, um, so the liberal media, um, say in Britain, the Guardian newspaper, which uh, I, I occasionally read, uh, you know, is a, a car carrying liberal <laughs> um, uh, newspaper, but it, it still uses these, these kind of binary, th- you know, the, the, good, the good Muslim is the moderate Muslim. Uh, who supports you know feminism and LGBT and all, all this and and then the radical it has it say you get that you get it in the Daily Mail another uh, much more conservative apparently conservative uh, newspaper so it, it seems to be a, a common me- media theme to describe these two groups in that way without much difference even though the Guardian would be um, very uh, very much against Islamophobia they would say this very proudly we're against discrimination and prejudice and we want Muslims to be happy etc but they still maintain this bifurcation when it comes to uh, the Muslim world, just as you've said, and it has roots that go back even to the colonial era. So this is it, it's curious. It's very curious. This is happening. But to decode this, to demystify, which is what you're doing, is a, a very uh, worthwhile exercise, I think. Yeah, and it's also tricky because individual countries will define uh, what it means to be a Muslim radical in different ways, and these things will change over time. So in uh, many Western European countries, to be a radical means uh, rejecting, let's say, LGBT or engaging in veiling. But you'll have other countries use the term radical, uh, let's say, in a Muslim-majority country. And for them, radicalism, do- you're not a radical simply by having a veil or rejecting no. LGBT. Mm-hmm. Uh, in certain countries, for instance, you could be in the Gulf and say Sharia should apply in the family law, and that wouldn't be considered radical. But in certain other countries, it would be considered radical. Right. So because these short these terms are constantly shifting and because they are uh, tied, because they're interpreted in different countries in different ways, they can be hard to keep track of and they're always subject to this uh, political politicization. I mean, I think what you find across, and in a place like China, you could be a radical simply for looking at Koran apps yeah. or uh, not eating pork or not drinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, uh, radicalism, the question of radicalism, I think a lot of people, including the overwhelming majority of Muslims, could agree, you know, don't blow up a McDonald's to yeah. express your religious views. Uh, but really, discourse on radicalism is not really concerned with, in most cases, in the overwhelming majority of cases, with formally joining a terrorist group or anything of that type. It's ordinarily concerned with questions about uh, integrating into a, na- a, a national culture that is associated with a national government, and different governments have different uh, priorities. Yeah. Um, okay. So what? Uh, so when we talk about post-colonial projects to promote human rights and religious reform, what do they look like? So during the colonial 
era, the empire has directly instituted laws to advance the cause of human rights, i.e. moral progress in Muslim lands. Today, the UN plays a larger role in this process. The UN has promulgated a constant stream of new human rights laws. They're always evolving. They begin with the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and they continue on with later conventions, like 1966 International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, 1979 Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, 1989 Convention on the Rights of the Child, Muslim states uh, are expected, they're pressured to gradually adjust their constitutions and legal codes to incorporate UN human rights legislation. Encouragement from Western states and NGO activism help push this process forward. And this NGO activism takes many different forms, including documenting human rights violations, waging media campaigns, using print publications and social media, organizing human rights protests, providing lawyers to victims of human rights violations, challenging laws that violate human rights in courts, and advocating for legal changes like decriminalization of blasphemy or extramarital sex. I mean, NGOs are like paid political activists and kind of Western countries, when Western countries say we want NGOs across the world, what they mean is we want uh, paid political activists that we can influence across the world. Which is one of the reasons why you see that countries which are more powerful, like China and Russia, they'll start expelling the NGOs because they don't want foreign political activists in the country. So with funding and encouragement from Western states, Muslim states are placed under pressure to use their religious infrastructure they control to propagate a reformed version of Islam. So this reformed version of Islam, as in the colonial period, it demands passive submission to the governance the government renunciation of jihad revolt. It also involves uh, constantly updating one's religious beliefs in keeping with evolving human rights norms. And this reformed Islam is disseminated to the public through proclamations by state muftis, sermons in state-run mosques, programs on state-run television or radio stations. Reformed Islam is also integrated into the curriculum of state-run schools and universities. Uh, reformed Islam also guides the reinterpretation and modification of religious laws applied in state courts. And NGOs will often play a, a quite important role in this process by advocating for reformed Islam in social media campaigns, by defining, by designing reformed Islamic books and curriculum for use in state educational institutions, and by proposing changes uh, to state, uh, to Islam related state laws. Now, this is now moving from the Muslim world to Europe. European states use similar methods to govern their Muslim migrant population. So European state schools take special measures to ensure that Muslims assimilate to a liberal European way of life. This involves teaching children about human rights, making it difficult or impossible for them to observe orthodox religious norms concerning dress, diet, and worship. So you, you can't veil. You have to take a mandatory swim class with revealing clothing. You're put in a situation where it's difficult or impossible to eat halal foods. And then when you're talking about adult migrants, not children, so adult migrants must take citizenship courses which inculcate liberal values. And those who show resistance to such values face denial or revocation of citizenship and deportation. European states have also sought to perform to promote a reformed Islam among migrants by creating a suitable religious infrastructure. So they will so you have European states contributing funding for local reformist mosques, reformist Islamic schools, reformist community centers, and reformist training programs to kind of create Muslim religious scholars who 
uh, embrace a kind of reformed French Islam, British Islam, Dutch Islam, German Islam, which is uh, liberal in character. Okay, so that is the religious reform human rights component of post-colonial Muslim policy. Now let's talk about the security project. Mm. So contemporary security policies related to Muslims have colonial roots, as many scholars have said in the past couple of decades. Beginning in early 20th century Turkey and continuing in the post-colonial era, Muslim governments have commonly instituted long-term authoritarian security measures by invoking a state of exception. Muslim governments' legislation concerning the state of exception is modeled on or directly inherited from legislation instituted by the European empires. So like the empires, you have since World War II, various Muslim governments in Egypt, Pakistan, and so forth, justifying a state of exception with reference to an extraordinary threat from their Muslim populations, especially those deemed to be fanatics or radicals. On the whole, Muslim governments, many of these Muslim governments will use the same tactics as the empires, including heavy reliance on the military, restrictions on expression, restrictions on gathering, mass surveillance, searches and arrests based on general suspicions, trials lacking safeguards like military courts, as, also, as well as significant use of torture and extrajudicial killings and disappearances. So sometimes people say, why are all these Muslim majority states engaging in so much torture and extrajudicial killing? What is this? Ha this is probably because they got it from the Quran. In reality, they're continuing on with liberal colonial policies for managing Muslim populations. Now, beginning uh, with... By the way, to, to, just to make it clear, um, torture in the Sharia is, is outlawed. It's completely haram. I mean, yes. it, it shouldn't need to be said, but I just maybe some people don't realize that torture is actually completely prohibited in normative Sunni Islam. Yeah, so I mean, these uh, kind of mass surveilling, uh, torturing people in, in this way, uh, going ahead and putting restrictions on religious practice. I mean, these can th these type of policies uh, are not inspired by pre-modern Islam. Uh, they are uh, they are a continuation of liberal uh, colonial governance strategies. Although people will say today, what does this have to do with liberalism? None of this has to do with liberalism. But this shows that they have a very limited understanding of the history uh, of liberalism and the history of actual liberal uh, policies. When they say liberalism, they refer to a utilitarian, a utopian politics that never, in fact, existed. Mm -hmm. um, so beginning with 9-11 uh, in 2001, you have a string of Muslim terrorist attacks associated with jihad uh, that took place in the U.S. and other Western states, and continuing over two continuing over two decades, these attacks have caused around four thousand deaths in Western states and have produced across the Western world highly exaggerated fears of terrorism. Responding to nine eleven, the U.S. immediately launched a global war on terror, often uh, abbreviated GWOT, so GWAT. Um, involving U.S. military in in interventions across the world and invasions of various Muslim countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. The GWAT has resulted in over 2 million deaths, almost all of them Muslims, as well as 38 million refugees and displaced persons. And this striking disparity between Western deaths and Muslim deaths is actually reminiscent of colonial conflict. 
So whenever you have jihad revolts in the colonial period, you would have a couple Westerners uh, killed, uh, but you would have huge deaths uh, on the part of these indigenous peoples, often indigenous Muslim peoples, because of this imbalance in technology. Uh, who, you know, who has the Gatling gun? For instance, and what what one famous Secretary of State in America said it was a price worth paying, I believe, when she was asked about the sanctions against a certain Muslim country and the resulting deaths of children on a huge scale. Uh, people, yeah, Madeleine Albright. Yeah, so the people are the price worth paying because you know her desire was to achieve certain geopolitical objectives. But the again, there's an expression of extreme uh, differences in power that she could say that. Um, publicly uh, and and it, and 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 inflict that kind of uh brutal uh destruction on, on millions on hundreds of thousands of muslims yeah so we need to so as i noted earlier um it's difficult for people who are who have been raised uh to adopt this kind of um ideological liberal discourse to appreciate phenomena like liberal authoritarianism or liberal dictatorship but also liberal genocide they will say Liberalism has nothing to do with genocide in the past, and then they have a problem. They also that blindness to the past will also prevent them from seeing how liberal genocide is not a foreign idea. We have the global war on terrorism is a liberal genocide of Muslims, which has claimed over two million lives on on some accounts, you know, three or four million. I, I would recommend that everyone takes a look at Brown Brown University's cost of war. Uh, project by kind of the Watson Institute. Um, uh, so we should not be surprised in terms of a serious academic critical analysis of liberalism. We cannot just uh, put our ideological blinders on and uh, deny these elements of liberal governance. Um, because that's going to prevent us from understanding liberal governance in the past or in the present. So following World War II, Western states were somewhat uh, accepting of authoritarian rule by various Muslim governments, but they periodically voiced concerns about excessive restrictions and violence. Nevertheless, the GWAT, Global War on Terrorism, has changed things. To advance the GWAT, Western states have insisted on a coordinated system of security measures which covers all regions with Muslim populations. With the encouragement of Western states, the UN has promulgated counterterrorism ter legislation, which tolerates or in fact encourages authoritarian measures extended across the globe and targeting Muslims. Now, this GWAT counterterrorism legislation authorizes many security measures which are reminiscent of colonialism, albeit they are updated in particular ways. Thus, counterterrorism legislation endorses a state of exception justified by the extraordinary threat of terrorism. This threat is not merely associated with individuals, so for instance, members of terrorist organizations, members of Al-Qaeda, but rather it is associated with, it targets Muslims as a general group, whether or not they're involved in any terrorist organization. Much counterterrorism legislation presupposes that Muslims are inclined towards a radicalism or fanaticism defined by attachment to Orthodox Islam. Attachment to Orthodoxy is frequent is routinely blamed for hindering Muslim acceptance of liberal norms and for encouraging jihad-related terrorism. Accordingly, the US, EU, and UN have endorsed uh, GWAT initiatives like CVE and PREVENT, which presume that countering terrorism requires countering the general teaching and practice of Orthodox Islam, so adherence to conservative 
dress, dietary, sexual norms is seen as a sign of terrorism. So, okay, you have a veil, you have a beard, uh, you have traditional Muslim clothing, you're sensitive about drinking alcohol, okay, this is a sign that you're a, a radical terrorist. Uh, colonial era government sought to counter fanatical or radical Islamic ideas through restrictions on public preaching and printed texts like newspapers. Similar methods can be found today. Hence, European states surveil and shut down what they deem to be radical mosques while deporting immigrant religious scholars who teach and preach against liberal values. Nevertheless, at present, much more attention is given to control of online expression. Efforts to restrict online expression began to crystallize after 2010. Led by the EU, Western governments have pressured the world's most important internet and social media companies, i.e. Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, to restrict online expression. And they've done this by threatening cri criminal and civil penalties for non-compliance. Companies have responded by instituting tight regulations on what they deem to be extremist or radical speech, hate speech, incitement of violence. And these regulations not only ban calls for terrorism, but they strongly advocate, strongly restrict advocacy of non-liberal opinions. So can, can, people... can, can I just say, I, I slightly disagree with what, what you said there. I mean, it, it's, it's come about in the last 12 months that uh, open calls for, I mean, it, it, it's the case if Muslims were to call for jihad on social media, you know, to, to, to fight against uh, whatever regime, you know, that that would be shut down, uh, absolutely. But th there are similar parallel calls in Western, like in, in Britain. Uh, Facebook have said that you can, and Twitter have said that you can call for the uh, um, the uh, armed insurrection and attacks on Putin and the uh, the, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, uh, and even for the, the assassination of P Putin. And Facebook have actually said publicly, we're not going to censor these uh, sentiments, which are parallel to what Muslims say in, in other contexts, but they're not allowed to. But it seems there, there is an exception um, for, for non-Muslims can call for jihad-like activities on social media when it fits in very neatly with current Western geopolitical or military objectives. So it, it's not that all calls for violence or all calls for jihad are rejected, but only when they're um, expressed by Muslims, I, I think. But but if if white people uh, do this who are not Muslim in in these new contexts, the Ukraine war, for example, then it's actually you turn a blind eye, and Facebook and Twitter actually allow these very same sentiments to go ahead that would be criminalized if they were done by Muslims. I ag I agree with you. So what I would say is that. Um, to be a little bit more precise, what is considered to be extremist or radical speech or hate speech or incitement to violence is determined by what advances a liberal project. So it's basically non-liberal violent speech. So if you wanted to say something like in the US, I believe in bombing Iraq or Afghanistan and killing lots of people, that's not considered a call to violence. No. Uh, even if you look at the US Constitution, the second, uh, traditionally, when people talk about defining terrorism, they will mean non-state actors using violence to advance a political end the second isn't Amendment, that the american sorry to interrupt isn't that the american revolution isn't that what you americans did <laughs> you, you rebelled against the duly constituted authority i the british empire and the king at the time you rebelled against that so that makes the american revolutionaries terrorists is it not? yeah so it's so according to the definition of terrorism that is on the books the u.s revolt was a terrorist insurrection. Exactly. The Second Amendment uh, goes ahead and it gives it gives as a fundamental human right 
non-state actors the right to have weapons so they can engage in terrorist insurrections. Right. People who engage in this terrorist insurrection are uh, celebrated in schools. The terrorist insurrection itself has like Independence Day celebration. Uh, the U.S. Uh, American flag is a is representative of this uh, insurrection as well. And you don't only have this with respect to the liberal American revolution. The French Revolution uh, is also that's where the word terrorist comes from. So the terror, yeah, so um, the, the reign of terror, which terrorized and guillotined thousands of people in Paris and everywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the notion of incitement to violence is it's really you can incite people to violence as long as you're inciting people to violence against a non-liberal regime. So you that, want to take that, that down... Point. It's, it's citing, yeah, inciting violence against the Russians is perfectly acceptable. Inciting, yeah, that, and, and that's the nuance that, that there. It's not just something to violence. It's something to violence by non-liberal actors. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you want a revolution in Hong Kong, you know, no problem. Yeah. You want a revolution against Putin, you know, no problem. Uh, but if someone were to call for, uh, if someone were to incite, if someone were to make even indirect, uh, indirectly encourage uh, resistance, social or political against liberalism, now you're in the field of hate speech, extremist speech and whatnot. Uh, so, now that you have these, so, so when we talk about restrictions on speech in the colonial period, more geared towards print publications and mosque sermons that are given by people, now you have a kind of counter, now you have kind of the security measures, these colonial-like security measures are really uh, targeting social media uh, discourse. Mm, also, uh, GWAT counterterrorism legislation provides government officials wide discretion to surveil Muslim communities across the world. This involves establishing networks of agents and informants to report on Muslim mosques, schools, restaurants, bookshops, and other associations. So uh, when we have, uh, so the scholarship indicates that these agents are doing things like monitoring the content of mosque sermons and even dinner conversations, like a halal restaurant. Uh, there's been a special emphasis in terms of these GWAT security measures on mass collection of electronic data. Mm. So we need to gather data on personal communication. So what are most, how are Muslims using email, cell phone calls, social media posts? We need to look at every Muslim's internet browsing history or use of prayer or, or Quran apps, because if they go to a prayer app, it means that they're more likely to be a radical. We need to monitor all the financial transactions, so their money transfers, their charitable contributions. We need to monitor their tickets, uh, their travel, so their tickets, their itineraries. We even need to monitor the, the, the movement of Muslims through space by using cell phone tracking. So this is all kind of electronic data collection. It's kind of updated counter-terrorism. Not only you have this electronic data, but you also have the biometric, what's known as biometric data. So everything that has to do with your body. So facial images, uh, fingerprints, voice prints, DNA. Uh, this has also become integrated into counter-terrorism policy. Uh, so, it's, so this biometric data is continuously collected at transportation sites like streets, medical sites like hospitals, public areas like malls. And then they're getting all of this data so all of these security agencies are getting all of this electronic and biometric data. And you might say, well, how could they analyze all of this data? It's going to be overwhelming them. Uh, no human could analyze all of this data. And the way that they handle this is through artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence enables the constant real-time computer-driven classification and evaluation of mass 
of a ma mass corpora of electronic and biometric data for security purposes. So if you have a certain set of physical characteristics, let's say you have an Arab male face. So these are physical characteristics related to race, age, and gender. This can be analyzed by a video camera, by a CCTV. And then you have certain patterns of online and offline behavior. So maybe you travel to uh, South Asia or you travel to uh, the Middle East. Uh, and on top of that, you wear a veil or you wear a beard. Uh, these, this data is all integrated, This, or you're visiting kind of Islamic prayer apps, um, uh, or you're spending a lot of time on Quran sites. All of this information about your face, your gender, your age, your internet habits, where you're traveling around, they're tracking where you're traveling around. All of this is integrated. It's analyzed by uh, artificial intelligence. And if you have a certain number of characteristics, they say you're statistically likely to be a radical or a terrorist. So you need to be uh, surveilled more intensely, uh, and even you need you might need to be restricted or punished in certain ways. Uh, so you have, based on this electronic and biometric data, you have security agencies in the West, uh, non-Western countries. They're given, uh, uh, based on the surveillance information they have, they're given wide discretion to seize the funds of groups or individuals, restrict their movements by visa denials, no fly list, detain them for long periods of time. When they detain them, they're often placed in secret jails or black sites run by the U.S. and its allies across the world. These detainees are routinely tortured. Some of the torture is using acknowledged methods like a waterboarding, sensory depri deprivation. You also have other methods which are formally banned. Uh, so those which were used as Abu Ghraib, some of them kind of went over the line. You also just have numerous suspects that are killed during arrest or detention. And you can also just, sometimes you can, if you have a suspect, if you have the data indicating the surveillance data, indicating that someone is a radical, sometimes you can just target them from extra, for extrajudicial execution across the world using kind of a sophisticated fleet of remotely controlled dr drones. So this is kind of like the updated uh, version of counterterrorism. Many of the same goals as the colonial period, but with new uh, technologies. NGOs uh, play an important role in these counterterrorism efforts. So they undertake research and private surveillance on mosques and schools and Islamic organizations. Many NGOs work as like a, a private security corporation. So they will, you have NGO staff going ahead and documenting expression of radicalism or fanaticism uh, on in a mosque or on YouTube. So they will go ahead and inform YouTube if certain videos need to be taken down, certain people need to be uh, watched more closely. So NGOs work with, they will document expressions of radicalism, report them to state intelligence agencies. These NGOs will work with NGO, with uh, internet companies to monitor is radical Islamic ideas online, ensuring that problematic content website and social media accounts are immediately taken down. NGOs also work to produce large amounts of internet content meant to counter or displace uh, uh, radical ideas. Such uh, content uh, demands uh, that individuals adopt a reformed Islam uh, in, informed by liberal values and human rights. So as in the colonial era, these special security measures do not simply seek to prevent violence. They also push Muslims to embrace on a kind of a masculine reformed Islam uh, informed by uh, liberal values and human rights. So do you want to be put on a no-fly list? Uh, do you want to be subjected to intensive surveillance? Do you want to be the subject of a drone strike? Okay, you don't want to be that, right? Okay, become a moderate Muslim. <laughs> um, 
that's kind of the message. Okay, so in conclusion, I've gone on for a while, but in conclusion, I've what I've argued is that liberal policymakers utilize a distinctive policy for governing Muslims. This policy can be traced from the colonial era to the post-colonial era. And this policy, this Muslim policy centers on three overlapping projects, a human rights project, a religious reform project, and a security or counterterrorism project. Efforts to understand Muslim policy are hindered by mistaken assumptions about liberal governance. Hence, it is often assumed that liberal governance is inconsistent with authoritarian rule and state entanglement with religion. This mistaken assumption encourages the commonplace view that contemporary Muslim societies are characterized, in many cases, by intense authoritarianism and tight state control of religious life because they have not yet implemented liberal governance. And the idea is that were these Muslim societies to implement liberal governance, such phenomena would simply disappear. But this view reflects liberal apologetics and is historically uninformed. In reality, most Muslim societies have long histories of liberal governance. Liberal policymakers associated with the European empires and post-colonial Muslim states have governed Muslim populations for over two centuries. Generally speaking, liberal governance has involved intense authoritarian rule, tight state control over religious infrastructures in order to propagate a reformed Islam. Admittedly, Liberal governance in Muslim societies looks different from liberal, go liberal governance in Western societies, yet this is because liberalism takes different forms depending on the population ruled. Okay, thank you. So that's kind of the overall presentation I had to give. No, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much uh, indeed for that. Um, uh, extremely interesting indeed. And I, I like the, the the critical way you're deconstructing the the discourse, uh, the liberal discourse, which refers to itself in utopian, idealistic terms, uh, and looking at, as you say, the actual history of, of uh, the, the implementation of liberal principles in colonialism and now neocolonialism. And it, it's something we can see very clearly that, that the West obviously eulogizes liberalism and free speech, uh, particularly when it comes to um, a, 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 um, very happily allowing authors like Salman Rushdie to to promote their works. But free speech on other issues, particularly of interest to, uh, to, to Muslims as well, like Muslims being able to express their, their views based on their faith, on their orthodox Islamic faith, are not permitted. Uh, that they're simply censored. So uh, Islamic views on LGBT or uh, even the different roles of men and women in Islam. But there's a a notorious case recently, just a month or two ago, of a French imam um, who was deported from France simply by quoting, because he quoted the Quran in a kutbah on, on a Friday. Uh, he was reported to the authorities because he was surveyed, and um, the state was very clear um, that he was not welcome in France. He was actually removed from the country. Um, his crime was to quote from the Quran. Um, so th th that's not liberalism. I mean, th th that's, that is inconsistent with the idealistic um, as you call it, liberal apologetics um, that w we are meant to believe that the the reality is liberalism has a very dark side to it um, when it comes to those who disagree with liberal ideology, um, and 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 so your your exposition there is very useful deconstruction of liberal apologetics in the name of historical evidence, colonialism, neo-colonialism, and the realities on the ground and governance in the muslim world so i think it's a extremely valuable uh, exercise this what you what you're doing well uh thank you very much uh i hope to i hope that i have uh, uh 
provided something that is, you know, somewhat clear that people can understand. I, I also want to say, I mean, my goal, and I know that your goal uh, as well, is not to demonize any government or any people, uh, whether liberal or non-liberal. We live in a very complex world. Uh, mm. Also, no one can doubt that certain liberal values are very appealing to individuals. Uh, also, even people, also, we don't want to create a view where we simplify, I don't want to create a view where I simplify the complex nature of liberal discourse or how it's contested within Western countries, or how it's contested with non-Western uh, non countries. I also feel the need to express this. I mean, I wouldn't feel the need to express it in other contexts, but I feel that when people talk about the Muslim world, they have to be very explicit. This is not a call for any kind of violence or anything like that uh, or... or um, this has just been a critical academic exposition of certain liberal practices uh, of governance, but certainly we can discuss this uh, without uh, I, one of the reasons why I, 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 I may be a little bit more sensitive about this than I would be in the past is I just opened up a Twitter account. And when I was commenting on kind of the history of liberal discourse on the history of liberal restrictions on speech, uh, um, in the context of the Salman Rushdie case, people start saying, oh, if you have any critical perspective on liberalism, basically you're encouraging violence. This yeah. is clearly not the case at all. Uh, no. um, but I feel that some people, because they've only been exposed to this liberal ideological discourse, have some kind of uh, difficulty understanding that when people critically analyze liberal discourse, they are not calling calling for any kind of violence against anyone, well, against any government, against anything of this type. So, and and on that point about your Twitter hand, I mean, obviously, I follow you on Twitter as well. Some of your tweets are extremely interesting. What what is your Twitter handle for everyone? What what would be? I think it's just my. I think it's just my name. I I think you could go ahead and just. I've, I'm actually new to Twitter. I don't know how to reply uh, correctly in many cases. I would just say, like, search for it under Aria Nikisa. Oh, I do. I'll make it uh, easy for everyone. I'll just, I'll just link your Twitter handle in the description below. I think that'll be um, because um, your discourse on Twitter um, is actually extremely interesting uh, and uh, and controversial, um, definitely, um, but 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 worth. Um, listening to and watching um just the paper that you've been sh sharing your thoughts from just now um when is this likely to be available for everyone to to read you think uh, i hope as academic publishing is ex extremely slow it's very advanced in the peer review process and i'm optimistic that everything will be approved and available within the next uh four or five months i know that's months uh, i i i know that that's very uh slow uh, yeah. But uh, even then, I mean, uh, certain ideas that are that I take up in this paper are explored in my other published work. And I'll also try and explore some of them and provide some evidence on my Twitter account uh, as well. And then as soon as the article is formally accepted and published, inshallah, I will you know, make it available to everyone. Inshallah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think then uh, people want to keep in touch with your work. Uh, best to follow you on Twitter then. Um, and and you have a website, of course, as well, which lists all your publications. You can just Google uh, your name. Um, so I mean that is fantastic. Uh, well, thank you very uh, thank you very much again for your um, your time and your expertise. And I, I hope I'm sure many viewers have benefited enormously from uh, your analysis, uh, your sober academic analysis of of uh, concepts and history and and 
asymmetries of power and whatnot. Very interesting indeed. Thank you. It's been such an honor, Paul. Thank you so much. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.